Father in heaven, we come before you with grateful hearts. We come before you, Lord, anticipating that you will speak to us as we sung in that song. Lord, we desire to hear you, to discern your voice. And we ask that as we open your word that you will open our hearts and our minds and that you will teach us these beautiful truths from your word that we may understand the gospel more fully and embrace it more heartily. And Lord, that our lives may be formed by you, that we may be like, like the clay in the hands of the potter, that you may shape us and mold us and fashion us until we represent um, your son, Jesus Christ, that he may be seen in us and that his life may be lived in us. So thank you so much for guiding us throughout this week of prayer. Thank you for the Sabbath that has come. What a great joy, a moment to rest in you. And Lord, I pray that tonight you will just remove all distractions from our minds and that you will allow us to experience the gospel. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And we'll be starting there, right there in verse 1. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Uh, as you know, um, I live in the country of Norway. Um, my wife is a Norwegian. And I live in Norway. I, I like it very much. It's a beautiful country. And one of the things that I like about Norway is it has four seasons. It's not all countries where you have really the four seasons throughout the year. Um, in Norway, we, we do have them. Uh, the winter is definitely the longest of the four. Uh, we actually have about um, four or five months of snow. And uh, so it's pretty, it gets pretty cold. And uh, we also have very, very short days in the winter. Actually, our shortest days, the sun will come up about 9 in the morning, and it will go down at 3 in the afternoon. <laughs> so we only really have about six hours of light. But um, then on the other hand, um, when we have our summer, we have very long days, and in Norway, you can experience the, um, the midnight sun, and, uh, which really means that it's there <laughs> in the middle of the night. And... Uh, it's just amazing that it hardly gets dark. It's somewhere where we live, we live a little bit more south in Norway, but uh, in the summer, in some of the longest days, it won't actually get darker than it is now outside. So it's quite an experience. Um, but that's the country where I'm from. But when you've had a long winter with many months of snow and frost and ice and cold weather, um, you start appreciating the spring even more. Uh, I've always appreciated the spring, it's one of my favorite times of the year, but especially for the last 10 years since I moved to Norway, I appreciate the spring even more. Because when spring comes around and the snow starts to melt and the flowers start coming out and there's this, just this breeze of, of warm air, it's just like, it's, it's just this yes to life. And, um, uh, but, but nonetheless, the life that comes in the spring is, is, is a beautiful lesson when you look closely at, at, at these four seasons and winter followed by spring. It's a beautiful lesson of the, what the gospel is all about. And uh, tonight I titled this message, Dying in Order to Live. And what I find fascinating each and every time, uh, when I go out into the garden in spring, and when I plant those tiny little seeds, that they, they're basically just dry and they look dead, and you bury them in the ground and you, know, you cover them with soil, that eventually that springs forth and actually starts growing. You know, it's, it's, it's a miracle every time. There are miracles in nature that sometimes we just take them for granted, right? But if you really think about it, these are lessons of the gospel 
And um, if you look in Romans chapter 6, we find in Romans chapter 6 a very pivotal lesson, a very pivotal truth when it comes to the gospel. In order for us to fully live with Christ and Christ living in us, first, what must take place is there must be a death to self. Something must die in order for Christ to live in us. It's just like in nature, you see the cycle of death and life. In the winter, everything's dead. It's covered by the snow. But then in spring, it, spr it, it springs out. It, it gives life again. The buds, they come forth, and it's just, it's just a beautiful cycle of life. And it has all the lessons of the gospel right in there. Now look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 and 2. Paul the Apostle says, he asks a question. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers his own question in verse 2. And he says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He's talking about dying to sin. We must die to sin in order for Christ to live in us. Just like the seed, it's put in the soil, it's covered, it's like a burial, but then springs forth and it gives life. Now, the very same question is asked when you drop down to verse 15. Basically, chapter 6 in Romans chapter 6, uh, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 15, um, brings us to a second illustration, and we're going to look at both of them here tonight. Um, and Paul asks the same question, almost identical question. Look at what he says. What then, question mark, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And he answers his own question, certainly not. So we find a similar question in verse 1 and a similar question in verse 15. And basically chapter 6 can be divided into two parts and Paul is giving two illustrations of what it means to, to die to self, what it means for, for us to allow Christ to live his life within us. And then as you move into chapter 7, and basically the first portion of chapter 7, the first six, seven verses, Paul gives a third illustration of what it means to die to self in order for Christ to live in us. And so we're going to look at these three illustrations tonight. That's all we're going to do. That's all we're going to cover. And the first illustration is, is about baptism. The first illustration that Paul gives us is the illustration of baptism, which is really a picture of dying to self as you go into the watery grave, and then as you come up out of that watery grave, it is like the resurrection of Christ, right? There is new life. You are dying to self in order for Christ to live. The second illustration that Paul gives that we're going to look at, the second portion of chapter 6, deals with an illustration regarding slavery, and we'll see what, what, what that all entails in just a moment. And then the third illustration that Paul gives in the beginning of chapter 7 is probably some of the most difficult verses in the Bible to understand. I've, I've you know, bumped into a lot of people that say, well, what, is that what, what is Paul getting to there in Romans chapter 7? And for a long time, I myself had a hard time understanding it because Paul gets very theological at times, a little bit complex language there. Uh, even Peter says that in one of his letters, you know, Paul is hard to understand. And, uh, but what we're going to do is we're, I, I believe you're a smart, a smart group here, and we're just going to take it bit by bit, we're going to break it down and see if we, can, if we can wrap our understanding around the third illustration that Paul gives, and it's an illustration of marriage. And again, this illustration of marriage is also, um, again, um, uh, tapping into the same truth that we must die to self in order for Christ to live. 
So this is the main teaching that we find running throughout chapter 6 and also into chapter 7. We must die to self in order for Christ to live. We must die to self in order for Christ to live. Illustrated by baptism, illustrated by slavery, as we will see in the story where Paul gets to, and illustrated by this marriage, okay? So we're going to look at these three illustrations. Let's start in Romans 6 and the first illustration of baptism. We'll read a couple of verses here. Um, And I'm going to read from verse 3, Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? What does it say? Into his death, right. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? In newness of life, right? In newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, Paul gives us here the illustration of baptism, and he says when you are baptized, you're baptized into the death of Jesus. And just as you go under that water, and that's why it's so important that in baptism it's not a sprinkling because that wouldn't illustrate a real burial. It's, it's, it's completely under the water. It's signifying entering into the death of Christ, but then coming up, it is illustrating or it's signifying the resurrection of Jesus. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday when we studied Romans chapter 5, that Jesus, when he died and when he rose, he united himself so much with humanity so that he says that his death now becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And we are invited into a new family. And this, this, is, this we signify to those around us that we want to belong to that family when we decide to be baptized. We decide that we want to show publicly that we want to, that we appreciate the death of Jesus, that we appreciate his resurrection, that this is our only hope, and that we want to be united with him in the family of God. And so we are buried and we come up out of that watery grave. And it is a picture, a beautiful picture of the old man that dies in order for Christ to live his life within us. Now, but of course, baptism, even though that is a one-time experience usually, well, there are times that people are rebaptized, but it's not something you do every week. It's not something you do every month. It's not something you do every year. It's usually a one-time uh, thing in your life. And, um, but nonetheless, baptism, um, the experience that it portrays, the picture that it gives to us, is really something that must be experienced every single day. You know, Paul the Apostle, in another place, he says, I die, can anyone finish that? Daily. I die daily. So the experience that baptism pictures of dying to self is not just something that happens once in a lifetime in the life of a Christian. But it's an experience that we must go through daily. That's why Jesus said things like this. And I'll just read this verse for you. In John chapter 12 and verse 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. So in order for it to bring forth fruit, something must happen to that seed. It must die, right? So 
We see this in nature. We see this in, we see the gospel revealed in, in the lessons of nature around us. And this is to be our experience as well. Jesus himself said to his disciples, pick up your cross and follow me. And they knew exactly what that meant because they had seen people walking with crosses and they knew that that led to, to death. And Jesus here is, is, is giving a, a symbolic picture of the experience of Christians, of experience of a follower of Jesus. There's something that must die when we follow Jesus. It's the old self, it's pride, it's sin. It's our old nature that wants to do what we want to do. And as we've discovered already in the book of Romans, this is, our, this is the most natural thing for us. We want to, that's what we're best at, sinning. And yet now Jesus steps down from heaven, comes to this earth and says, because of my death and my resurrection, you can take up a cross and follow me. You can die to self. And this is not something that we can do ourselves. We cannot die to self ourselves. This is something that God does for us. And I like to think of it this way. You know, you cannot crucify yourself, right? Like, if Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, how are you going to crucify yourself? Well, you might get one nail in there, but you're not, you're not going to be able to do the rest. In other words, the work of dying to self is something that God does in us. Amen? Something that God does in us. Putting to death that selfishness, putting to death that pride, putting to death that sin in order for him to live out his life in us. I love what it says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I'll just read this for you. It says, Paul, Paul speaking here. Many of you will know this verse by heart, I believe. If you know it by heart, you can say it out with me. Say it out loud with me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. Now, you know, when I was studying that verse and I was trying to understand better the experience of what it means to die to self, I thought to myself, is there some illustration in the Bible that can help me to understand this? And uh, as I was pondering upon this text in Galatians where it says that we must be crucified with Christ, I thought to myself, was there someone that was actually literally crucified with Christ? And the answer is yes. Who was that? The thief on the cross, right? When Jesus was crucified, there, was really, there were actually two individuals that were literally there. They were cru being crucified with Christ. And I thought to myself, is there something in the experience of that thief on the cross that can help us to understand what this symbolically means in our lives as we are, as, as we are to die to self in order for Christ to live? It's interesting. When the thief, those two thieves, were, were crucified with Jesus on each side, the Gospels tell us that initially they were reviling Jesus, both of them. Both of them were, you know, were, were speaking down on Jesus and they, and they made fun of him. They ridiculed him. But then one of the Gospel writers, Luke, he tells us that one of those thieves, a change started to happen in his life. Now, he was there dying, and suddenly he realized just the, the way that Jesus responded, and, 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 and perhaps he had heard some of the teachings of Jesus, and it's starting running through his mind that this man is not guilty. I'm guilty. I'm here because I'm guilty, but this man isn't. And there's something special about him, something special about him. And so he turns to Jesus, and he says those words. He says, remember me when you come into the kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and says, and, and affirms to him that yes, he will be remembered and he will have a place in paradise. 
And when I thought to myself, what is the experience that this man is going through, this thief on the cross? What he's actually going through is that he is now dying to self. Think about this for a moment. The thief on the cross died on the cross twice. First he died to self, and then he died the literal death. But on that cross, as he turned to Jesus, as he realized his own sinfulness, his own, uh, his own need for salvation, and, and he turns to Jesus and he puts his confidence in Christ, he is here dying to self in order for, to, to, to receive the, 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 the assurance of Christ that he will get a place in paradise. He's giving up the old man. He's dying on that cross. And praise God he died that death before he died the literal death. And the great question for each one of us here today is which death are we going to die first? And I pray sincerely that each of us may first experience the death to self, amen? Because dying to self frees us up to invite Jesus and to have Jesus in our lives, living out that he can live out his life in us. And so the thief on the cross died on that cross twice. He gave up, and, in, and when he gave up, when he surrendered, he was filled with a, with a joy. And even though he was suffering those last moments, he had the assurance of a place in paradise. Now, dying to self really has to do with surrender. It has to do with surrendering. It has to do with coming in repentance to Christ and says, I, I, I was wrong, and, and, and I've come to the point where I see that I cannot do it in my own strength. I surrender. It's the white flag. It's saying, God, I give up, but I want you to now do your work in me. And, and that's why we've come now to Romans chapter 6, and throughout this week of prayer, we've been studying lessons in the book of Romans. And I think it's been quite clear in each and every chapter that we have studied so far that it is, if there's something that Paul reiterates over and over and over again, it's the truth that we in ourselves cannot do anything good. <laughs> That we in ourselves cannot be saved because of our goodness or because of our works or because of our performance. That, there, that we come to a point where we understand our brokenness, our wretchedness, and that we fully rely upon a power outside of ourselves. And in Romans chapter 6, we come to the point of full surrender by dying to self. We come in repentance before Christ, asking for Him to take over. One of my favorite uh, books is Steps to Christ, and I know that you've made a wonderful production on that here at Fountain View with both music and testimonies. And on page 47 of Steps to Christ, many of you will be familiar with this quote that I'm going to read. Um, I think it just reiterates so much this experience um, that we come to when we actually fully surrender. Um, let me read it for you here. Steps to Christ, page 47. Many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? You desire to give yourself to him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt, and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited, forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you. But I love the next words. She says, but you need not despair. And I think whenever, whenever I read this, I think, you know, so many of us, if not all of us, can relate to this. I believe every single one of us can relate to this. You know, you want to do what is good, but 
the power is lacking and you feel that your commitments are just like ropes of sand, it's just slipping between, between your fingers. And you wonder, how am I gonna get this peace that Christ promises? How am I gonna experience that new life in Jesus? Well, let me, go, let me continue to read here. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. Not something, not most, everything depends on the right action of the will. You know, you must make a decision, a choice to belong into the family of God. You must make a choice to surrender, to die in order for Christ to live in you. You must make, you must, you must exercise your will to say, God, intervene in my life. I cannot do it without you, but with you all things are possible. Lord, I see my own weakness. I recognize my own frailty. I need you more than anything else. I, I want to die to this old man so that you can take over, so that you can take control. And so please, Lord, put to death self. Crucify me so that I, so that I may live my, your life and that your life may be established in mine. This is an active decision, a choice. It's using the willpower, exercising the willpower. Everything depends upon it. Now, when it comes to the illustration that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 6, we see very clearly as he, as he portrays it here in Romans chapter 6 that this is not just a one-time experience. This is a daily, a daily experience. Each morning as we get up and we pray to the Lord, we can pray, Lord, this day I surrender my life to you. We start by surrendering. We surrender and we say, Lord, this is my, I want my life to belong to you. I give up. I know that I in my own strength can do nothing, but through you all things are possible. I believe your promises and live your life in me. And that moment that we are surrendered, that moment that we have surrendered, we have actually voluntarily, and, and, and hold on to that word because I'm going to come back to that, voluntarily we have picked up the cross and we're following Jesus. We are on that cross. Now, Jesus, was he, when he was crucified, was he voluntarily on that cross? Yes, I, I believe so. Uh, let me ask it this way. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, did he have the power to step down from that cross? Yes or no? Yes, yes, he did. As a matter of fact, when they came to take him captive in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember that suddenly some angels appeared and, the, and all those soldiers, they just fell like dead men? I mean, Jesus did not have to say, give himself um, into the hands of, 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 of those soldiers, right? In other words, Jesus submitted to this. Jesus was voluntarily on the cross. He could have stepped down any moment. And actually, when he was hanging on that cross, we read that, that the Pharisees and the scribes, they were saying, you know, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They was tempting him to come down. But he stayed on there for you and for me. Now think about this. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and, and follow me, are you, that, that's a voluntary act, right? I mean, we can choose to do that or not. We are, we are creatures that have been given free will, free choice. So we can say, no, I don't want that. You know, we can stay in the family of Adam. Or we can say, yes, I want that. I pick up the cross, I die to self, and I follow Christ. But because our cross is voluntarily picked up, listen very carefully, we can also voluntarily step down from it. In other words, when you go throughout the day and you've surrendered your life in the morning and you are 
spiritually speaking here, symbolically speaking here, you're on that cross. You're crucified with Christ. You have died to self. Christ is living within you. When the temptation comes, you know, and that person makes that remark and you just want to blast them, or that person does something and you just get irritated, or you just are jealous about something and you know it's wrong, you can decide either to hold on to that thought, and the moment you hold on to that thought, you are actually exerting yourself from the cross, you are coming down from the cross, or you can say, Lord, I surrender that thought to you. I ask for you to empower me to stay on the cross so that in this situation, in this circumstance, in this trial, in this challenge, I can represent you and not me. And that's the choice. It's a choice. I mean, it's the exercise of the will, and it's not... It's not that you're doing it in your own power, but you are allowing the power of God to flow through you when you stay on that cross. And this is the message of Romans chapter 6, dying to self in order to live. Christ can only be represented in us when we have died to self. Now let us look at the second illustration. Let us look at Romans chapter 6, we drop down to verse 15. This is an incredible um, way that Paul pictures this, and I'm going to first read it um, here in Romans chapter 6, and I believe it will just further enforce what we're talking about here this evening. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. What then, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So there is basically a question of who you belong to here. Who are you, who are you slaves of? Who are you obedient to? Verse 17. But God be thanked that though, that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So the question is, are we slaves of sin or are we slaves of righteousness? You know, I heard this remarkable story um, a while ago of an Englishman that in the mid-1800s, he traveled to California, from England to California, and uh, he was searching for gold during the gold rush and, uh, to, in order to provide for his family back home in England. And it took many months and it took a long time, but eventually he found some, and he was so happy, so excited in order to bring what he had found, in order to, to, get, to get the money from what he had found, that gold, and to bring that back to, in order to supply for his family in England. But as he was traveling back from California to England, he stopped in New Orleans and he was supposed to get you know, a boat from there up to New York and then over across the ocean back to England. And as he's waiting in New Orleans, he had a free afternoon and so he's just walking across the marketplace there in the city and suddenly he hears shouts in the distance. And he walks closer to see what is going on. And right there in the midst of the marketplace, there are slaves that are being sold. And um, there are, uh, are men standing all around, and they're bidding prices for, for these slaves. And uh, as he just stops there and he just, for a moment, takes in the scene, he's just horrified by what he hears and by what he sees because there are two men specifically that are bidding for one slave, a woman slave, and they are actually, even as they are bidding and saying, uh, they are actually telling everyone what they're going to do with her once they own her. 
And so this, this, this man is hearing all of this and he's so horrified that he actually decides that he's gonna buy her to set her free. And he bids much more than the last one and he has to use all that he had just found, all, all the money that he had just gathered from his uh, time in California, from his um, uh, gold searching in California. And, he, and he's able to purchase this slave. And the first thing that she does when she's given to him is she spits him in the face. And he just calmly, he wipes away the spit and he takes her by the arm and he takes her down a street. And he goes into a room and she does not know what's going on, but he signs some papers and eventually he comes back and puts this paper in her hand and says to her, you're free, you're free. Now, of course, she's taken by surprise by these words, and for a moment, she just can't imagine what has taken place, but once it sinks into her mind and she understands that he has purchased her in order to set her free, she falls on her knees, and with tears running down her face, she says to him, I will serve you the rest of my life. I'll serve you the rest of my life. Isn't it, isn't it that really picturing the gospel in many ways? Jesus has paid the price for our sins, and it is a high price, my friends. It's the life of Jesus himself. And by purchasing us, he is showing us his love and his compassion. And when we look at the cross and we allow the cross and the, and the truth of it and the, and the enormity of it to sink into our minds, our response should be the same. We should respond and say, Lord, I want to belong to you forever. I want to serve you forever. I will be a slave of righteousness. You know, a slave is under, it's, it's of course not, it's a very ugly word when we think about what has happened in the past, and, but a slave is really un, under the full control of someone else. And normally that is, that is horrific, but when it comes to Jesus, we can say amen and hallelujah. To be under the full control of Christ is something beautiful, amen? I mean, this is, this is something that is absolutely central in the gospel, that our lives are not our own, but they belong to Jesus and we are under his full control. We have surrendered ourselves to him. And so what we find here in Romans chapter six in the second illustration here is an illustration of, of slavery. Either we are slaves to sin or we have been set free from Christ and we are slaves of righteousness. We have allowed the work of Jesus to change us from within so that we are not bound by the shackles of sin any longer, but his life is now being lived in ours. And so the second illustration that Paul gives to us is this illustration of slavery. And again, it illustrates so well the dying to self message. We die to self when we understand what Christ has done, when we understand what he has gone through for us. And it's so easy to become immune to this. You know, we hear it in our lives. We grow up with hearing that Jesus has died for us. And because we've heard it, heard it so many times, it's very easy to just become immune to it. Oh yeah, I know about that. I know about the love of God. Yeah, I know about what Jesus has done for me. And we almost just kind of tune out when we hear it. It's a danger, my friends, to become immune to the gospel. The gospel is, it has such a beauty and such a power that we must always, always pray and ask the Lord, don't make me immune to this. May I understand it more? May I embrace it more fully? May, may I comprehend it? May I see it? Open my eyes, Lord. Touch me over and over again that I may see it, that I may understand it, that I may experience it and hold on to it. 
And with this in mind, I want to go to Romans chapter 7 and to our third illustration. And I'm going to admit right now, it's not going to be an easy one, so you need to put on your thinking caps now. And, uh, but I believe as we take this step by step, and with the foundation that we've already laid, I believe we'll be able to understand this illustration as well. Paul gets a little bit theological here, but once we can wrap our understanding around what he's saying, it's actually very, very beautiful, very significant, and very central to what the gospel is all about. So Romans chapter 7, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it through first, and then we will um, take it point by point. Romans 7, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God." For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear, bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the latter. Make sense? All right, let's see if we can understand this. There are basically four subjects, four, four um, roles within this uh, illustration that Paul gives to us. First of all, he talks about a woman that has a first husband, a woman that has a first husband and a second husband, and then he talks about the law here. Now, if we are able to identify these four subjects, I believe that we'll be able to understand the illustration of Paul. Now, in this, in this illustration, you and I are represented by the woman. And uh, this is something that you will not only find in this illustration. As a matter of fact, you go all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And there's this beautiful picture in Scripture that the church of God, the believers of God, they are like a woman and are like uh, the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. And this great marriage is to take place, right, between Christ and his church. So this is no new idea. Um, there are many passages that we could go to to illustrate that. So we're represented here by the woman. Then we have the, the, the law. And the law is dealing with the law that binds um, a man and a woman together in marriage. So this must be the Ten Commandments, the law of God, right? And it says that, that, the, that the, um, this woman cannot go and marry another, a second husband, when she's married to the first. The law does not permit that. You're not allowed to commit adultery. That would be breaking the commandments of God. Okay, so if we're the woman and the law is the law of God, then what, who is then the first husband and who is the second husband in this illustration? Well, let's go to verse 4, and I think it will be very clear who the second husband is. Verse 4, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, listen to this, that you may be married to another, that would be the second husband, and then it describes this other, this second husband, to him who was raised from the dead. Who's that? Jesus, right? So Jesus is the second husband. So catch this now. We're the woman in the parable. Uh, not parable, but illustration. We're the woman. And there's a law, and the law binds us to our first husband. And um, it binds us in such a way that, that we cannot marry another when that first husband is alive. 
Okay? The only, the only time that you can marry again is when the husband dies, right? And then the same law that bound you to your first husband will bind you to your second husband. Does that make sense? The, the law doesn't change. But the only way for you to marry again would be when the first husband would die. Now, the second husband, according to the illustration, is Jesus. Now, now, now catch this. We are married to the first husband, but who do we want to be married to? The second. Who do we want to be united to? Jesus. You want to, do you want to be united with Christ? Amen? And that's, that's the ultimate uh, heart of the gospel, right? That we are united with Christ and this intimate unity with Christ is resembled most fully in a marriage. It's beautiful. And so what we are seeing in this text is, yes, we desperately want to be united with Jesus. We desperately want to be united in marriage to the second husband. But it's impossible. It's impossible while the first husband lives. And so there's only one way, only one way, Paul is saying, for us to be united with Christ, the second husband. There's only one thing that must happen. And what's that? The first husband must? The first husband must? Die, right? Now, then we need to find out who's the first husband, right? Now look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law, uh, were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Now this is significant. What Paul is describing here is that the first husband is self. It's the old man. You know, if, if we are united to something most closely, most intimately, it's really self. It's pride. It's sin. And as long as the first husband, the old man, the self, the pride, the sin, is alive in us, it's not possible for us to be united with the second, with Christ. And so again, the illustration is bringing us back to this core message that Paul is developing here throughout chapter 6 and into chapter 7, and that is we must die in order to live. Self must die. The first husband must die so that we can be united with the second husband with Jesus Christ. Amen? And this marriage, this unity, can only take place when there's first a death to self. And so we find this as a very fundamental principle that the gospel rests on. And again, it's not something that we can accomplish in and of our own strength. It's not like, okay, Lord, I know what I have to do. I have to die to self. Let's get to work. I will die to self so that I can be united with you. No, it's surrendering. It's letting go. It's saying, Lord, please put self to death in my life. Crucify me with you. You know, put to death that, 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 the selfishness and pride in my heart. Take out that stony heart and replace it for a heart that beats in harmony with yours. You know, give me your life. Renew me in your spirit. This must be our prayer. This must be the burden of our hearts in order for us to experience what Christ has in store for us. And so with this in mind, I want to just look at a couple of verses in Romans chapter 8 before we close this evening. We've looked at Romans chapter 6 and, and the first part of Romans chapter 7 here that illustrate what it means to die to self in order to live for Christ. Three illustrations Paul has given us. The illustration of baptism, the illustration of a, being a slave of righteousness, the illustration of marriage. Each one is pinpointing this, the crucial truth, the fundamental truth that lies at the very heart of the gospel. 
dying to self in order for Christ to live. Now look at Romans chapter eight as we look at the first couple of verses in this chapter. Listen to what it says as Paul brings this together here. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And when he says in Christ Jesus, that's really what that marriage is all about. You're united with Christ, you're in Christ. Who do not walk according to the flesh. They're not married to the first husband. They're not walking according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I've been made free. Self has died. Verse three, for what the law could not do and it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, what Jesus has done in his life is now made available for us. And there is no condemnation, and what a beautiful message, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a story in the gospel where Jesus says those words to, to a lady that was caught in adultery, you remember. Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. And isn't that the heart of the gospel? Christ removes the condemnation, but he also gives us the promise that with him and through his power and through his strength, we can be victorious over sin, not because of our own strength, but because we allow him to live his life in us, because we have died to self in order that he might live. When you think about that story, when the, when the woman was caught in adultery, you remember what took place. She was thrown at the feet of Jesus, and they asked her, what, what should we do with her? And uh, he stoops down, and he starts writing in the sand, and in the book, Desire of Ages, gives us just a brilliant insight into what he was writing there in the sand. He was writing the sins of those that were standing there condemning her in the sand. Just think about it. That's the same person that wrote the law of God in stone. Here he's writing sin in sand. And just if they would understand for a moment the significance of who he was, if they would just for a moment understand his identity and his mission, they could understand that the sins that he was writing in the sand, he could wipe away. You can't wipe away the law of God, it's written in stone, but you can wipe away sins that are written in sand. And that's exactly what God wanted to do, that's exactly what Jesus wanted to do. But instead they walked away, and the question is, will you walk away, or will you allow Jesus to wipe away the sins of your life? He can do it, he can do it instantaneously if you allow him. Exercise your will, come to him, fall at the feet of the foot of the cross. Ask for repent, repent of your sins, lay it all before him. He knows it anyway. You don't have to hide anything from him. He knows it. Lay your sins at the foot of the cross and you will find forgiveness, you will find peace, and you will find the assurance that condemnation is removed and that you will find the power there to live a new life in Christ Jesus. Hudson Taylor, he said it this way. He said, in the easiest position of life, he must give me his grace. And in the most difficult, his grace is sufficient. Amen? His grace is sufficient. And so I pray that you will put your confidence in him, that you'll not become immune to the gospel, but that the reality of what Christ has done may impact you over and over again because it is actually in reality Christ that is walking across that marketplace and it's you that is being sold. And he purchased you. He gave everything for you. 
And the question is, what are you going to do back? What are you going to give back? Are you going to serve him the rest of your life? It's worth everything, amen? Imagine when we're in heaven one day, millions of years in heaven, and we'll look back upon this life, and, and really, what is it? It's so short. It's so short. But the question will be, what have we done with it? You know, what, what was our greatest affection on this earth? When we woke up, what were our first thoughts? And when we went to bed, what were our last thoughts? What did we live our lives for? What would we spend our energy on? May it be the gospel, amen? May it be the things of God. It's, it's worth everything. It's worth everything. In closing, I want to have a word of prayer, but before we close, I just want to, just want to make a very short appeal, and that is the following. Maybe there's something in your life that you realize that, that is hindering you from experiencing this death to self. And maybe as I've been speaking, the Holy Spirit has been reminding you of something that you say, you know, that very thing that you're thinking about right now, that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of, that is standing in the way. If you let that go, if you surrender that, God is saying, I, I can live my life in you, but you've got to let go. You've got to surrender. So someone says tonight, I just want to surrender that, whatever it is. Amen. Anyone else? I want to surrender. Praise the Lord. Let's pray that God will give us the strength to do that. Shall we kneel together? Father in heaven, we're so grateful that we can come before your throne of grace this evening. We're so thankful for your Sabbath that we can enjoy together here at Fountain View. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts through the words of the gospel book of Romans that portrays the gospel in such a marvelous way. Thank you, Lord, for the message that we can die to self, and not because of our own strength, but because you want us to experience this, and you can give us the power to experience it. A death to self so that you can live your life in us. And Lord, we long for this, and we freely acknowledge this evening that there are things in our life that hinder that from happening. And Lord, you've brought those things to our remembrance, and we just want to lay them at the foot of the cross right now. We want to thank you that through the power of, your, of, 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 of the cross and through the sacrifice of your Son, that whatever it is, it can be removed from our lives that there is sufficient power in the cross. And thank you, Lord, that even now you are ministering for us in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, that we can come before you with boldness, with confidence. And so thank you, Lord, that we can lay our lives before you, help us to experience the fullness of the gospel, that it may go forth unhindered in our lives. And be with us throughout this Sabbath day, Lord, as we uh, tomorrow just enjoy this time together, this day together. Um, I pray that you will bless everything that will take place and that you will draw our hearts closer to yours. For this we pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.